Welcome back to Mathatai. We're glad you're joining us. Thanks for checking us out and listening to us. It really means a lot to know that people are, are listening and uh, gleaning from these studies. We know there's a lot of great teaching out there. I encourage you to find uh, biblical teachers that will uh, grow you in your faith and your understanding. And we pray that we can be a part of that for you guys. So uh, drop us a line, send us any questions, any thoughts you have, and uh, how these are blessing you. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, we'll keep plugging away through this. But we are in the book of Luke. We have been studying the birth narratives regarding John the Baptist and of Jesus. In our last study, we saw the birth of Jesus there in chapter 2, verses uh, 1 through 20, as we saw the birth of Jesus and then the shepherds coming uh, to visit Jesus after that time. And so today we're going to look at what happened after the birth of Jesus in his first couple of months of life. There's some significant events there uh, that are very meaningful for the purpose and mission of Jesus, as well as how we relate to him and how they would have understood him in those days. And so we want to dig right in and see what uh, the scriptures have for us. So pick up with me in Luke chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 21. It says, And at the end of eight days he was circumcised. And he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed." And so we're going to break this apart piece by piece and see what the scriptures have in store for us here. Uh, but we have an incredible account of the early birth of Jesus. As we closed out our last study in, in verse 20, we saw the shepherds returning back to the fields, glorifying God, praising God for all that they had seen and heard as it had been told them. And all over the town of Bethlehem, the, the news of this birth had begun to spread. And so, uh, in verse 21, we see it now almost a week later. It's eight days later. Uh, according to the custom of the law, Jesus is circumcised and named at that point. Now, the focus here is not so much on the tradition of naming a child, um, because whether that was done on the eighth day or at the time of birth, there's a lot of speculation about the custom and tradition there, and there's no law prescribing it. But here, the focus is not so much on the timing of the naming, but on the fulfillment of the law and then the, the person of Jesus. It's a very theocentric section here where God is the center. The work of Jesus uh, and what he's come to do is the centerpiece 
of this account of his being presented at the temple. And we see the fulfillment of the law is a very important aspect of that. As we get into verses 22 through 24, we're going to see the offerings being made for the firstborn, for this new child by Joseph and Mary. And we're going to dig into what that means for us. So in verse 21, it's after eight days he was circumcised. And this is uh, accordance with the Jewish law. Genesis chapter 17, verse 12, we see the institution of circumcision there as the sign of the covenant with Abraham that God had made. Leviticus chapter 12, verse 3 tells the new parents that on the eighth day, after that child is born, uh, has a week outside of the womb and is able to get established in that sense, you would bring the child that is now eight days old, and circumcise that child into the covenant of Israel, into the mark of the people. It's the symbolic cutting away of the flesh. Um, They're cutting away the flesh of the world to enter into God's kingdom, to be identified under the covenant of the law right there. Now, for Jesus, he's circumcised, but it wasn't for the cutting away of his flesh because he was sinless. He is the son of God. He is God in the flesh, sinless, sinless. He's not fallen in any way and needs no forgiveness. So uh, the the cutting away was a little bit different for Jesus. It was fulfillment of the law that Jesus would be able to identify with the covenant. He's one of the covenant people of God. He comes under the law in that way. For those who were not circumcised at this time, they were not taking the mark of the covenant, and therefore they were not considered a part of that covenant relationship with God. So this is the mark of the covenant Uh, of the Abrahamic covenant that God had established all the way back in Genesis, beginning in chapter 12 up through chapter 17. We see it reiterated a few times. And so Jesus, in having that cut away, first of all, is identifying with the covenant. But secondly, there is a cutting away of the flesh because Jesus took on our sin. And so in in a sense there, you could identify that it's being that the world's sin is being cut away in that in that sense. He perfectly fulfills the law by from his very birth submitting himself to the covenant relationship of God with his people. And so he was circumcised at that point. It also says that he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And so this is the name that was given to both Joseph and Mary. It was so important that both of them were given this title. Uh, Joseph was uh, visited by the angel Gabriel back in Matthew chapter 1. And in verse 21 of that chapter, the angel uh, tells Joseph, the name will be Jesus. And as we saw previously in Luke chapter 1, verse 31, Mary is told to name the baby Jesus. So both of the Uh, parents, the earthly parents of Jesus are given that name. And it's an important name signifying the mission and the work and the identity of this child. It's the name mean, means salvation. It's the, uh, the Greek form of the old, of the Hebrew Joshua or Yeshua, uh, that the Lord is my salvation, my salvation. And so Jesus is the savior. He is the Lord's provision of salvation. And that's uh, defined even in the name there. So he fulfills the law by being circumcised. He's identified with the covenant. He comes under the law that he might perfectly fulfill it on our behalf to be our salvation. And so this fact is reiterated numerous times throughout this section, how Mary and Joseph are acting in accordance with the Mosaic law. And so uh, it's, it's, set next to Simeon, as we're going to see in just a little bit. And the focus on Simeon is not his keeping of the law, but his filled with the Spirit. And so it's interesting that these two are lumped together in the exact same setting as Mary and Joseph come to uh, 
submit Jesus to the law and the working of God through the Old Testament system that Jesus would ultimately fulfill, Simeon comes in and gives a hint towards a New Testament system of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, as Simeon himself is filled by the Holy Spirit. And both of these, behind both the law and the filling of the Spirit, the error of grace, if you will, stands the plan and purpose of God. God is seen in both of those. And here we see the two married together in this important event uh, at the uh, shortly after the birth of Christ. So he's circumcised, he's named, he's identified uh, in that season, all as, as revealed, all as prescribed by the Old Testament law and revealed by the angel Gabriel. And then in verse 22, we see another duration of time. It says, when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses. They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Now, this time of purification would have been 40 days after the birth of Jesus. According to the Old Testament law, again, Leviticus chapter 12, specifically verses 1 through 8, it gives the purification laws for a woman who is given childbirth. Uh, After uh, seven days, she would bring the child to be circumcised, and she would be uh, considered unclean for those seven days. Um, Not to get graphic, but because of the discharge of bodily fluids and things related to the childbirth, they would give a full week for uh, that process to run its course. And then at the end of those seven days, she would be able to uh, be uh, cleaned in a a sense to partially re-engage in the community. Uh, But it wasn't until a full 40 days after the birth, so an additional 33 days on top of the first seven, that she would be able to be welcomed fully back into the worship setting of the community and engaged in the life of the people. And so that's according to Leviticus chapter 12. So we see that that time of purification has come. And that waiting for the 40 days would have would have allowed that woman's body to be healed, to be restored back to its uh, standard form, if you will, uh, prior to childbirth, allow all of the impurities of childbirth to be discharged, to be healed up, to be cleaned. And then she would be able to offer a sacrifice at the end and be accepted back into the community. And so there's a couple interesting notes that we see here. First of all, it says in verse 23 that when the time came for their purification. Not just Mary's purification. Now, normally under the law, Mary would have been the only one requiring a sacrifice to become pure again. All of those things would have applied there, but perhaps this is indicating that Joseph somehow participated in her impurity or was engaged in that in some way. And so Joseph himself could have been deemed impure because of his close interactions with Mary. They're not at their home in Nazareth, but they're there in Bethlehem and he's taking care of her and therefore he would have been deemed impure. Um, Perhaps it could have signaled that uh, Joseph is acting as the head of the family and he's simply ensuring that the law is fulfilled appropriately. And so he comes to present them for the purification of the family as a whole, not just for Mary herself. And so this quick statement there on Mary's purification uh, is kind of the introduction to an important aspect here of Jesus' presentation. And so the presentation of Jesus uh, is a very important thing that we're going to see here. And we see that they had been probably staying in Bethlehem around this time with friends. They're not going to travel with a newborn baby. And so after the eight days he's circumcised there, there, that circumcision could have taken place in the home that they were staying in. They didn't have to go to the temple for that process. And in fact, Mary being unclean would have prevented her from going into the temple. Um, so that circumcision was probably away from the temple, uh, away from a, a formal ceremony involved in those locations. 
And now at this time, it says that uh, the time came for their purification. The 40 days was fulfilled according to the law of Moses. And so they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. So Joseph and Mary bring baby Jesus, it says, up to Jerusalem. Now, anytime you're going to Jerusalem in scripture, you always go up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is always seen as an ascent. Uh, even though Jerusalem is geographically uh, lower than Bethlehem, uh, they would still go up to Jerusalem. So we always go up to the Lord. He never, uh, We never go down to the Lord. And it says there in verse 23, they go up to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Now, this is the concept of the firstborn uh, child. Uh, this this pattern of present, presenting Jesus according to the law stretches all the way back to the Mosaic law. Uh, back then, back in Exodus chapter 4, we see that uh, Moses is engaging with Pharaoh as the people are enslaved in Egypt. And in chapter 4, verse 22 and 23, um, Moses is, is warning uh, Pharaoh, the things that God says, and sa- uh, God tells Moses, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your firstborn. And so there is that transaction of firstborns in that case. You have enslaved my firstborn, God says, my special people, my my chosen people that will inherit the rights that I'm giving them. And so you need to let them go that they can serve me and live out that relationship with me that they were designed to have. But if you don't do that, I'm going to take your firstborn away from you in the same way you've tried to take my firstborn away. And that was the warning there. And so now as Israel is redeemed from Egypt through those 10 plagues and then the passing through the the Red Sea, the Sea of Reeds uh, on dry ground to get to the other side and God spared them and saved them and all of that, they institute the Passover in Exodus chapter 12. That on that final 10th plague, you guys know that the angel of death swept through the camp and whoever didn't have the blood painted on the doorposts, um, the angel of death would have come in and taken the firstborn of that household and whoever had the blood, the firstborn would have passed over that house or that the angel of death would have passed over that house and the firstborn would have lived. And so what that did is it instituted the... uh, the Passover was something they were to do to remember what God did in sparing them and saving them. And that's instituted in Exodus chapter 12. Now, as we come out of Exodus chapter 12, uh, we have an interesting uh, statement from God in chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, where God is declaring all of the firstborn as his possession. And this seems a little bit uh, out of place, if we will, because Here we're talking about a feast where we remember the salvation of God as he passed over the firstborn. Now God is claiming the firstborn as his own. In Exodus 13 verses 1 and 2, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and beast, is mine. So they belong to the Lord. And jumping ahead to verses 11 through 15 of Exodus 13, it says, When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, you as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that open, first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when the in time... 
Uh, and when in time to come to your son, he asks you, he says, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh suddenly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. So you could redeem your firstborn out of service and dedication to the Lord that they might come back and, and not be killed because they belong to God. You could buy them back in a sense at the price of a lamb. That lamb took the place of the firstborn son that belonged to God. And so you could redeem them back. A donkey would be redeemed from the lamb or else its neck broken. It would go to be with the Lord in a sense. And similarly, a, the firstborn of a woman would be redeemed. And it would be the reminder of God's salvation from Egypt. He spared all the firstborn, so the firstborn belonged to him. In order to keep your firstborn, you've got to pay the price in order to keep them. Uh, a similar passage uh, is uh, given in Exodus 34, verses 18 through 20, in connection to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So again, uh, this redemption of the firstborn and, and, and the separation of the firstborn unto God is always connected with these feasts. Um, in Exodus 22, verses 29 through 30, the, um, the firstborn belonging to the Lord uh, speaks about them need to be given over on the eighth day or at the time of circumcision there. And so it's interesting to note that according to Exodus here in these passages, we're looking at that the presentation and the offering of the firstborn uh, were something that you would do in addition to the sin offering and burnt offerings. And these were required for every newborn baby. You would give an offering to the Lord for the life and health of the baby and as a thanks and praise to God and for any sin that, that you might have passed on to them. You, you would purify your new baby in that sense and you would purify the mother. In Leviticus chapter 12, we've seen that. And, and so uh, the newborn first child, the firstborn child, always had this additional requirement of being redeemed, not just purified. Now, uh, after this, uh, there's a, a period of purification and all that would follow, and that's what we've read in Luke here. Now, as we move forward in the Old Testament story about the firstborn, we find that in Numbers chapter 3, uh, this topic of the firstborn comes up again. And in Numbers, there's the Lord is taking the Levites as his special people to serve him. So initially back in Exodus, all of the firstborn were dedicated to the Lord to be his special servants, to be his special possession. Now, as we come into numbers, they get into the land and they begin to establish themselves. You've got to now identify who uh, is the servants of God, who has these special roles. And so the Lord chooses the Levites out of all of the other uh, people groups to do that. And so in Numbers chapter 3, verses 11 through 13, we see it says this, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the people of Israel. The Levites shall be mine, for all the firstborn are mine. And on the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated for my own all the firstborn of Israel, both of man and beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. And then jump up to verse 40, where he says, And the Lord said to Moses, List all the firstborn males of the people of Israel from a month old and upward, taping the number of their names, and you shall take the Levites for me, I am the Lord, instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel, and the cattle of the Levites, instead of all the firstborn among the cattle of the people of Israel. And so Moses did all of this, and all of that happened. And and then verse 48, and you're to take, or I'm sorry, verse uh, 47, you shall take five shekels per head 
as a redemption price now for all of those firstborn. And you shall take them according to the shekel of the sanctuary and give the money to Aaron and his sons as the redemption price for those who are over. Uh, and so Moses took the redemption money from those who were over and above those redeemed by the Levites. And from the firstborn of all the people of Israel, he took money and Moses gave that to Aaron and his sons as the Lord commanded. So what the Lord did is he replaced the dedication, the requirement of service that was originally placed on the firstborn. He now gave that to the Levites themselves. And so the firstborn could have been redeemed out of consecrated, dedicated service to God in order to engage in public life within the community. And so they had to be redeemed back out of that. And we see it wasn't a great price. It was five shekels. It was a smaller cost that most all could afford. So they were able to redeem back their child. The Levites could stay sanctified and set apart for the Lord's service. And you could still have the firstborn dedicated unto God in fulfillment of Exodus there. And we see this going throughout Numbers in chapter 8, verses 16 through 18. In chapter 18, verse 15, the Lord has replaced the firstborn with the Levites, but you still have to redeem your firstborn. And so, um, <coughs> even after the institution of the Levitical priesthood, the firstborn was still special to the Lord, but you could redeem them out. And now after the Jews returned from captivity in Babylon, so 586, they go into captivity in Babylon. And then when they return from that captivity, um, they reinstitute some of these ordinances that they had forgotten about over their history. And so they go back and they, they look at some of these things and they, they, they begin to practice them anew. So in Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 36, we see one of our final instances of this in the Old Testament, where it's, uh, it says to bring the firstborn of our sons and our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstlings of our herds and our flocks, to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of God. So again, there's the dedication of the firstborn all the way in Nehemiah, uh, probably around 500 BC uh, before Christ. And so as, as we look at the life of Jesus, Jesus, who perfectly fulfills the law of God, he lived the law that we were unable to live. And then he gives us his righteousness. He gives us his perfection in replace for our sin and our failure. And so Jesus perfectly fulfilled these laws of circumcision, of being presented in the temple, of uh, the uh, firstborn redemption. He was redeemed back in that sense. But it's interesting to note as we come here into uh, back into Luke chapter 2, that as we look at the, um, the sacrifices that were made at that time, it makes no mention of Mary and Joseph offering a lamb or five shekels as a redeeming sacrifice or purchasing back or redeeming Jesus back. And so um, it does record the sin offering and the burnt offering offered on that 40th day in verses 20 through 22 here. It says there that they, in verse 24, they offered a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or a pair or two young pigeons. So that would have been the price for uh, a poorer uh, family in order to sacrifice for their child. Uh, so they fulfilled that one, but we don't see anything about them buying back the firstborn or redeeming the firstborn. And so there's several reasons that this could be why and, and, and several indicators of what we might be able to connect from that. One of which is that Jesus himself is the redeeming sacrifice. And so um, all other redeeming sacrifice pointed to Jesus since the time of Moses. So whenever they would buy back the firstborn, they were using a lamb uh, to buy back the firstborn. And so 
Jesus is the Lamb of God. And so he doesn't need that redeeming sacrifice in that sense. Um, the other side of it is, is that uh, uh, his life is completely dedicated to God. So he's not being bought out of the service, if you will. When you are redeeming your firstborn, you're redeeming them back from God that he might be reunited with your family and used in your fields and to go about daily business. Whereas the Levites, as they were dedicated to God and consecrated to God, it was for the purpose of dedicating themselves to the temple and worship of God. And so Jesus is completely dedicated to God. He's not coming out of that role and responsibility. He's maintaining that. And so uh, we're not offering a, a lamb in order to redeem Jesus out of service, but Jesus remains in service, dedicated and consecrated to God. He was never redeemed from that role. And so that's a very important thing to note there, that Jesus remains in the role of the firstborn of God uh, with all of the responsibilities of being a servant, of being dedicated to the house and the worship and, and the service of God there. So Jesus as the great servant, as Luke puts him, uh, is, is very important to note from just that, uh, that indicator there. And so we also have an imperfect Levitical priesthood at this time. Um, it's contrasted to uh, Jesus, who is the perfect priest. We'll see that come later on, and especially in, in other uh, texts throughout the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 6 talks about he's a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, uh, that priesthood beyond the Levitical priesthood that's even greater and purer and, and predates that. And so um, he's able to be identified in the special role, consecrated and sanctified to God, prior to a Levitical priesthood, prior to this type of service activity, would have set Jesus apart from any other figure at that time. And so you've got the 40th day, the, the turtle doves and pigeons there um, are, are the, the normal price for the birth of any child. Um, and so Luke adds in, in verse 27, um, he says that he, <clears throat> uh, when the parents brought him into the temple, to do all that you know was according to the custom of the law. So again, the, the focus is on following the law and keeping the law in the early life of Jesus. The custom of the law speaks of that 40-day purification and, and Mary and Joseph being faithful and devout and, and attentive to doing that. Um, Mary comes into the temple after 40 days. She's now pure, so she's able to attend. Um, and so all of this is being fulfilled according to uh, the law of Moses that Jesus has perfectly fulfilled. So we've got that caveat about uh, the, the presentation, the circumcision, the naming, the identification of Jesus in those few verses there that lay out quite a bit about his nature and his mission. He was never redeemed back from service. I think that's a key point for us to get. And uh, he remains in the service of God as the firstborn. He was never redeemed back out of that as far as we can tell. Now, as we look in verse 25, we see the introduction of a new individual here. And uh, we see a very uh, telling aspect of, of Scripture uh, that gives us a lot of information that the other previous chapters don't do. It builds on there, but it gives us a very clear definition of Jesus uh, as we're going to see. So in verse 25, it tells us, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. This is an incredible short description of this man. We know very little about Simeon other than what is said here. So this description gives a, a wonderful glowing picture of this man. He was one who was dedicated and sanctified to the service of God. It says he was righteous and devout. 
He's waiting for that consolation of Israel, and he's filled with the Holy Spirit, things that would have been very unique at that time. A couple things to note about him first before we dig into that a little bit. He doesn't have an official title. Uh, some have suggested that he's a part of the Jewish council because having the uh, the role in the sanctuary in the temple there uh, and then doing the things he does, he would have had some sort of authority in the temple to do these things, but there's none given to us. So he would have certainly been a figure in the temple. Those people around there would have known him, his upright character, his moral standing, his faithfulness. He would have stood out amongst the people there. Um, but he's a layman as far as we can tell. He's a faithful layman in the faith. Uh, something necessary for all of us these days. And says, first of all, that this man was righteous and devout. Now, righteous is a term that we're familiar with from uh, chapter one with Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were both righteous before the Lord. They acted righteously in their behavior. We also see this of Joseph in Matthew chapter one, verse 19, that Joseph was a righteous man. He wanted to do what was right to those around him. Therefore, Joseph would not divorce Mary, would not put her away. And so this speaks of his character towards others. He was a man of faith. He was a man of compassion, a man of truth towards those around him, a man who cared for others. And so he acted righteously. He did righteousness. Uh, And he was also devout. Now, this is quite the combination here. The devout aspect of of his character speaks of his relationship with God. He was a, a determined, faithful, and engaged in his fellowship with the Lord and his intimacy with God. And so this would have been a stark contrast to the other leaders in the temple, to those that he who actually had formal positions, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and all of those who were more... Um, <clears throat> more focused on the religious service, on on the the position, the preeminence, the the presentation that they had and the ceremony and the pomp that they would have gone through, uh, rather than their own personal walk with God. They weren't devoted to the things of God in the same way that Zechariah and and Elizabeth were, in the same way that Joseph uh, was, and, and here in the same way that Simeon is. So Simeon is dedicated to a walk and knowing personally the God of Israel and looking for the coming of his Messiah and the promises of God to be fulfilled to his people. His focus was not on himself. His focus was on God's glory and the blessing of the people of God. And that was, again, very different from those around him. So he's righteous in his actions towards others, and he's devout in his affection, his relationship with God. A very powerful combination of terms right there that uh, should be something for each of us to consider. Are we righteous and devout in that way? Do we treat others uh, appropriately uh, in truth and love? And are we pursuing that relationship with God above circumstance and position and power. But it also says more about him. It says that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, this was a difficult time uh, in Judea, especially. You're under the rule of Rome. You're, you're, you're a, a colony, if you will, a state under an, an empire that has uh, complete and total dominion and rule over you. They've put in place a king of that region called Herod, who was pretty tyrannical. Uh, We see from Matthew that Herod, a short time after this, would kill all of the children, ages two years and under, to try to 
killed Jesus because he was intimidated and threatened that a new king was born that might threaten his rule. And this is the type of of time that they were living in. Not only is there that outside uh, pagan Gentile oppression, but within the church, as we within the the temple, within Judaism, uh, there are. Uh, those religious leaders and the religious sects beginning to form that were battling each other for authority and truthfulness and 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 there's a, a, an abuse of power. There was corruption. Uh, all of that w- would have been ripe within uh, the temple itself. And so those who were righteous and devout were longing for better days for the people of Israel, times when God would restore Israel to what it was meant to be, when God would rule and reign, when God would have his way with the people. And you have Zechariah, uh, as one individual, and you have Simeon here uh, as a, an individual like that. And we see numerous individuals throughout uh, the New Testament that seem to have that heart. We'll get, uh, in our next study, we'll get up to Anna, who is uh, a prophetess that seems to have that same desire. You've got Simeon and Anna placed side by side, uh, showing two individuals with the same passion. And so they were looking for the consolation, for the comforting of Israel in the promises of the Messiah and the establishment of God's kingdom, the liberation of Israel from tyranny and their freedom. And so he was looking for the fulfilled promises that God has made in the Old Testament. And we'll look at that in just a second as we get into his blessing that we're going to see here. And it also tells us an interesting that he was filled or the Holy Spirit was upon him. So even prior to Pentecost, at the filling of the Holy Spirit there, the Spirit was active in the life of men such as Simeon and individuals in the Old Testament there. You can think back to uh, the book of Exodus where uh, Moses is trying to rule over the people and there's some perhaps two and a half million people that he's trying to rule over and judge between and so on. It was too much for him. And so his father-in-law says, well, you need help. Why don't you uh, pray and, and, and select out. And 70 men were raised up to be elders there and says the Spirit came upon them and they spoke in different languages. And, um, you know, we saw an evidence of the Holy Spirit at that point. And so uh, here we've got a man who's filled with the Holy Spirit, looking for the promises of God. He's righteous and he's devout and he's desiring to see God glorified. It's a key, a key aspect of this man, a very incredible man there. And, and so, the next couple of verses, verse 26, tells us a little bit more about what he was expecting and why he was at this point. It says, And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he had this promise from God that you will not die. You're not going to see death until you see the Lord's Christ, the Lord's anointed one, the one who is going to fulfill the promises of the Old Testament. You won't die until that takes place. And so you can see the the focus of Simeon on God's promises because he says there uh, in verse uh, 27, and he came in the spirit to the temple. So Simeon is led by the Holy Spirit to the temple. This is not a coincidental meeting. Uh, this He didn't happen to be in the right place at the right time. This was a God-ordained uh, invitation to uh, be there at the same time. So he came in the spirit to the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him, according to the custom of the law, so all of these things that they were supposed to do, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. So Simeon sees Jesus and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, through the the, the direction and guiding and unction of the Holy Spirit, whatever term we want to use there, he identifies Jesus. He takes Jesus up in his arms without even saying a word, without even any introduction. He knows who Jesus is automatically. And so he's able to identify 
Jesus. And he took him up and he blesses God. And this is our fifth nativity song that we've talked about. All the way back into chapter one, we've seen five different nativity songs come forth out of this. The first one was Elizabeth's Benedicta. Uh, back in um, uh, chapter one, was it verse 40, uh, 42 um, through 44, uh, 45. And then we have Mary's Magnificat in response to that in verse 48 through 55 of chapter 1. And then we have Zechariah's Benedictus there in uh, chapter 1, verse 68 through 79. All three of those songs giving us inclinations of who Jesus is and what he's about to do. We saw the next one, the angel's adoration or the gloria of the angels in chapter 2, verse 14. Uh, Again, not giving us a whole lot of indication of Jesus, but praising God and worshiping God for what he's done by sending Jesus. And here we have the final uh, hymn or psalm uh, of the nativity, and it's called Simeon's Nunc Dimittis. I don't know if I pronounced that right, but that's the Latin phrase. It's the Latin phrase that comes from the first couple words of this. It's now you are letting, now you are allowing. And so uh, this is Simeon's praise, Simeon's benediction unto the Lord. And he said, he so he takes the child up in his arms and he blesses God and he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. So he's he, he says, now, now is the time. The, the time has now been fulfilled that I have seen your salvation. It's not a future event any longer. Now the time has come. Now I can depart in peace because the cause of his unpeace or, or, or the lack of peace was that the salvation had not arrived yet. Israel was still in their struggle. The solution was not presented. Even though there was the promise of solution, uh, Simeon's focus was on Israel's redemption, was on God's plan and purpose being fulfilled in the world. And he says, now I have peace because I see God that you are continuing to work and act. You haven't set us aside. And he says, this is according to your word. You can look back in the word of God and you can see God's promises to his people, Israel. Uh, He was probably looking back at Isaiah chapters 40 through 66, an incredible series of chapters that speaks about the restoration that God is going to do through the Messiah. And when we look at the next few verses, we're going to see numerous verses from this section pop out. Uh, If we want to look back into Isaiah, we can go back to Isaiah chapter 40 um, in verse 5 when we see uh, some of the things that he's going to say next begin to uh, take fruit for us here. So Isaiah chapter 40 verse 5 says, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. We're going to see that in uh, the Song of Simeon. That it says, you know, my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people. So, again, all flesh will see this together. And then in chapter 42, verse 6, we see uh, in Isaiah there, it says, I am the Lord and I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. And if you read on in verse 32 of Luke chapter 2, it says, you're a light for revelation to the Gentiles and a glory for your people, Israel. And so we've got the light there. So perhaps Simeon's mind is going back to this portion of scripture and the terms that he's using are a reference back to these sections. 
in Isaiah 46, verse 13, he says, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off and put my salvation or, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Again, verse uh, 32 of Luke chapter two talks about for the glory of your people, Israel. In chapter Isaiah chapter 49, verse six, it says, he says, is it too light a thing that you should be uh, my servant to raise up the tribe of Jacob and to bring back the preserved Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. So the extent of the salvation is expressed there. In Isaiah chapter 52, verse 10, he says, the Lord has bared his holy arms before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of God. In chapter Isaiah 56, verse 1, it says, Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for my for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. So Jesus being that righteousness. And then finally in chapter 60, verse 1 of Isaiah, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Now, with those verses in mind, look back at Luke chapter 2, verses 29 through 32. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. According to what word? According to those promises from Isaiah and many others throughout the Old Testament. And here's what those promises are. My eyes have seen your salvation. I've seen what you've promised. Uh, that you have prepared in the presence of all people. In other words, everybody sees this. This is not a hidden thing for certain people only. It is for all nations. It's for the whole world. It's a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and it's for the glory to your people, Israel. And so you've prepared this for everybody. There's a universal salvation here. This is not just for Israel. And again, you get back to this time and, and there was a mindset that Israel is the chosen of God and everybody else is rejected. And so we've got to realize the mindset of the people here, that this universal salvation would have been a new proclamation uh, that, that is, is raised here. It's not something new scripturally, but it's new in its context here. Jesus would be the one who is bringing knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of sin in chapter 1, verse 77, talking about the tender mercies of God and how God would bring Israel back and bring that salvation. He's the Messiah. But the focus had never yet been on the ends of the earth. And Simeon is bringing that to the glory of God, the greatness of God, and saving all nations and all people. And so Jesus is that instrument of salvation. That's what he says, when my eyes have seen your salvation, the method or the, the, the program of your salvation, I've finally seen how you're going to do this, God. That's what he's saying there. And you've prepared it for all people to see. He says there that you're a, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Again, we read in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, and again in verse 9, that that light uh, that he has sent out into the world that is for the nations, that the, the nations would see this light and see the truthfulness of it and would come to God and have that relationship with God. That This light has come into the darkness to reveal the truth. And who is in the greater darkness? You have Israel who has the revelation of God. They have the word of God before them, even though they weren't following it well, even though they had set it aside and had complicated and done many things to it, they had the light. So who is in the greater darkness and needs light? It's the Gentiles. And so he says here, this is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Now, if you, if you look throughout scriptures, um, we see that the light is identified as Jesus himself. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, 
It tells us that Jesus is the light. In chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, uh, John there says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So Jesus is that light that's come. And then up again, verse 9 says, uh, you know, John is not the light in verses 6 through 8, but in verse 9, uh, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So now this is no longer Israel, this is the world. Jesus is the light unto the world. And then uh, a few chapters later, in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus himself speaks, and he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so Jesus is the light for revelation to the Gentiles, the revelation of to true life. What is real life? What is life about? Why are we here? What's our purpose? It's to glorify God. And Jesus brings that light. And in Colossians 1.13, it tells us that he, Jesus, has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And so we've been taken out of the darkness. Uh, we've been taken a- away from that uh, that that darkness of our eyes to the truth, and we've been brought into the light of Jesus Christ, that we may have uh, the the life that He offers through relationship with Him, through the light that He brings to to see our condition and to see our remedy of that condition, that He is our Savior. Now, up into First John, First John chapter one. He says this in verses 1 through 7. It says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, and which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and which was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and have heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And I am writing these things that your joy may be complete. So here's what we've experienced. As Jews, here's what we have. Here's our Messiah. And here's this in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. That God is light. God is revealing. God opens up the darkness. God casts light into the darkness. And in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So the light for revelation to the Gentiles that Simeon is talking about here, Jesus is that light that unveils the truth. He manifests the truth of God to all the Gentiles, those who were separated from God, not chosen by God, not his special people, are now invited in through the Messiah. And that light of revelation comes through Jesus, that that reaching hand of salvation comes through the person of Jesus Christ. So the Gentiles have this light for revelation. And then the second half of this phrase, it says, and for glory to your people Israel. So as Gentiles, we're primarily associated with light, uh, light that is needed to reveal darkness, the, the, that would reveal our condition and our state and our solution. However, the Jews already have this revealed. They have the, uh, the, the revelation of God throughout the uh, two millennia prior to this. And, and so 
The Jews have a different relationship to God. And when we think of the Jews, when we look back in the Old Testament, uh, the Shekinah glory of God is something that identified the Jews and distinguished them from everybody else. And it's that Shekinah, the presence, the weightiness of God, the, the physical manifestation of God, if you will, within their midst that would distinguish them and was the goal. When they uh, built the tabernacle in the wilderness, that, that Shekinah glory of God came and, and, and dwelt in the uh, uh, the Holy of Holies there on the uh, on the ark itself. When Moses was up on Mount Sinai, it was the Shekinah glory of God that appeared to him and, and caused him to glow. Uh, he was hit, Moses was later hidden in the cleft of the rock as the Shekinah glory of God passed before him. And, and it was the in the tiber, uh, in the tabernacle where the Shekinah glory of God went and dwelled in that permanent dwelling place. And it's also there where the Shekinah glory leaves the tabernacle and abandons the people into their sin. And so that Shekinah glory of God, the the, the presence of God in the midst of his people was the distinguishing mark of Israel and something that Israel was to be uh, known by and distinguished by as the people of God. Uh, he was going to use Israel for his purposes. From in their midst, he was going to reveal his nature and his character and his purpose to the entire world through Israel itself. And it was through Israel himself that Jesus came. Jesus came as the Messiah, and, and it's through Jesus that all of the nations, all of the Gentiles would be blessed. So the glory of God being restored to the nation of Israel is something that was the consolation of Israel. This was what would bring comfort that God is not done with Israel yet. And so that consolation Israel comes uh, for Israel comes as the glory of the Lord returns and begins to use his people once again. There had been a silence of prophetic messages since Malachi a couple hundred years earlier. There was a, a, a corruption of the system. There was an abandonment of the uh, old practices of the law. There was an abandonment of the relationship of God with his people. And now God was going to restore the glory back to Israel through the Messiah. And that's what this promise that Simeon is, is giving us here. It's an eschatological promise that I've seen your salvation now. You're reaching out to all of the peoples. You're bringing light to the Gentiles that were apart from the covenant. And to the people of your covenant, you're restoring your glory. So it's an amazing promise that Simeon is making and an amazing prophecy in that song that he gives there in his Nunc Dimittis. So uh, that is the fifth Nativity song identifying the ultimate purpose of Jesus and providing light to the Gentiles, light to those that are outside of the covenant and restoration of the glory to those that are in the covenant, that we may be all made one in Christ and we all uh, are united there in Christ. Now, those words are, are amazing to us and it was amazing to Joseph and Mary as well. In verse 33, and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, uh, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And so the extent of the ministry of Jesus up to this point, they were looking at this as a local Israeli ministry to the Jews. But now Simeon's just taken this to a whole global level, saying all of the people, all of the Gentiles, everybody has a light given to them through this child. And so they would have marveled at the extent. They, they, they knew the identity of Jesus through Gabriel, through the previous experiences, but here this has taken it to a new level. Jesus is now someone that's not just for Israel, but he's for the world. 
That would have been an amazing thing that they would have marveled about and how Simeon knew these things. It would have been amazing for Joseph and Mary. And so Simeon blesses them. He gives them a blessing and then he turns directly to Mary. And he says, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And so, you know, God has a plan. This child is appointed. This is something that God has instituted. It's no accident. It's not some some hopeful thing. God is directing and guiding this. God is going to expose the hearts of mankind through this child. That's essentially what that says. Some are going to fall. Some are going to rise. Uh, It's those in Israel, first of all, in the house of the Jews and those to whom the revelation was given, that there are, that the hearts of those are going to be exposed, as he says there at the end, that, that so that the hearts of many in verse 35 may be revealed, whether their heart is for the Lord or for themselves. And so you're going to now have it made manifest where these people are really standing, what their focus truly is. Are they righteous and devout or are they more interested in their own glorification, in their own satisfaction, in their own power and authority? And so Jesus becomes the dividing line in the plan of God. He wants to restore the people. He wants to establish his kingdom. He wants to have a special people to himself. He wants to bring us back into the original designed relationship we're to have with the Father, that we can walk with him just as Adam did in the garden with Eve. He deals with our sin that we can be restored. And he says the dividing line, the intent of the heart comes down to what do you do with Jesus? That's, that's what this blessing is all about. He is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. In other words, he is the sign. If you oppose him, you oppose God. If you're against Jesus, you're against God. He is the way to the Father. And if you go through him, you will rise and you'll have victory. If you oppose him, you fall and you have defeat. Jesus is the dividing line. And he turns personal in verse 35, and he says, Mary, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Mary is going to experience a lot of turmoil and trouble, perhaps because this is her son, and to see her son mistreated, to see how Jesus will struggle and be opposed. As Mary stands at the foot of the cross, and Jesus says, uh, behold your mother, to John, and, and, and to, his, to Mary says, behold your son, and he passes off that responsibility. Her heart would have been gripped by that. But her heart would have gripped in many other ways because she has to wrestle with her own life. She has to wrestle with her own salvation and submit to God's plan of salvation. And so this separating mark, we either accept the salvific plan of God through the presentation of his son, Jesus, who is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies to restore us to God through his death. We accept that. We receive that. We rise. We have restored relationship with God and we now walk in righteousness and truth. We walk in the light and we follow him or We reject that message. We continue to walk in our darkness. We reject his truth and we continue to walk in our own path for our own good, our own benefit, not for the glory of God. And we miss out on all of those things. It's the dividing mark. So the question comes now as we end this, where do you stand? Where do you stand in relationship to Jesus? Are you on his side? Have you accepted him or are you revolting against him? He is the dividing line of God's plan. And so he is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And so I pray that you 
have come to know him through just our first couple of chapters thus far. I pray that you see the truthfulness that even in his birth, he is the appointed Messiah of God. He is the one that God is using for the salvation of people. And we're going to see that as we continue through the book of Luke. We're going to see that this is meant, again, as Luke says, all the way back in Luke chapter 1, verse 4, when he gets his um, his purpose for writing this, he says, I write that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. I want you to be sure that you know the truth about this because Jesus is the dividing line. Get this right. So as we continue through that, we're going to continue to to pour into that and see that Jesus is that dividing line and we've got to get it right regarding him. He is the Savior. He's the Messiah. And it's through faith in him we are restored with God. So I pray you're blessed by this. We'll pick up next time looking at Anna and her uh, revelation and and her comments on this. And and then we'll look at uh, the young life of Jesus before we move into our next section. So um, go on to our website, mathetide.org. We have a lot of resources there, uh, previous podcasts, a YouTube channel. Um, and we also have some great gear that you can get, math tie t-shirts, pens, notebooks, and all those sort of things if you want to represent, if you want to help support the ministry. Uh, we are looking forward to traveling again soon, getting back out and training pastors and teachers in various places. We're doing a lot of this online through small group teaching currently, um, so you can check out some of that there. And then also make sure you subscribe to the podcast, subscribe to the YouTube channel, and uh, follow along, uh, pass it on to others that might be interested And uh, we look forward to going through the word together and growing together. So again, drop us a note if you're interested or or if you have any comments or uh, suggestions of things that we can do or questions we can try to tackle. We'd love to do that. And uh, we love going through the word together. So thanks for your time today. We'll see you next time on Mountain Time.